Okay, thank you, Dr. Dresden. So moving on to next presentation, which will be mine. So again, my name is Song Jang. I'm the interventional endoscopist at the Cleveland Clinic, and the title of my presentation today is a direct oral anticoagulants primer for gastroenterologists. So having said that, the focus of this talk, to be honest with you, is the acute brisk upper GI bleeding, so life and thought. So if we're talking about actually also pertinent issues of the elective procedures. Um, I think Dr. Dresing covered it, and uh, there will be a slide here and there, but our focus is on the, uh, the acute active bleeding where uh, a physician like Dr. Tu encounters not so uh, uh, uncommonly. So here are the main objectives of my discussion. So I'll discuss some time in terms of roles of endoscopy in management of GI bleeding in terms of especially the timing of it because that is pertinent as to whether we should consider reversing these medications or not. And it moved on to some second. The management of the DOACs in terms, as well as a little bit on the antiplatelet agents, uh, I'll uh, touch, touch, touch upon during the acute GI bleeding. And lastly, I'll provide several slides on the, what, what are the available guidelines and consensus on the uh, gastroenterology society, both domestic and international. So before I forget, here are the main key points. Number one, the timing of the endoscopy should be based on the patient hemodynamics, not on the fact that if the patient has been sufficiently reversed in terms of their coagulopathy. And be, let's be frank, we do not have any head-to-head -head data that exists supporting the better patient endoscopic outcome, that is namely the better endoscopic hemostasis, no need for a second look, 30-day mortality on those data when we, uh, when we took a look at or discussed the issues of reversing the DOACs. And lastly, in terms of when we consider reversing the DOACs, it should be given to very selective circumstances, which depends on the timing of the last dose, signs of persistent severe bleeding, and also, as Dr. Dresden mentioned, in terms of their ability to clear the drugs, whether it's a renal or hepatic related. So we came a long way from a couple of decades ago where we actually had a uh, mortality uh, related to acute GI bleeding anywhere between 11 to 12 percent, now down to 6 to 8 percent, which I think is also in large part our ability to perform endoscopic hemostasis, but at the same time the development of drugs such as PPI actually has a monumental contributions. We know that the, that the mortality tends to be higher during the weekend admissions as well as the public holiday. And also, if the patient is admitted to the hospital, which don't deal with this in day-in and day-out basis, the mortality tends to be higher. So, you know, I've heard so many times from my senior fellows and mentors, kind of the bad adage, you know, all bleeding eventually stops, which kind of is true. But I guess the point that we're making is the death directly attributed to the hemodynamic collapse from the exsanguination is of a rare exception. It's not a norm. In fact, more than 80% of the death is attributed to the, the worsening of their underlying comorbid conditions. That said, we know some of the risk factors that are related with the increasing mortality, namely the age, as well as some chronic comorbid conditions such as a cardiac, renal, as well as end-stage liver disease. So in terms of assessing severity of the GI bleeding, uh, I think Dr. Drazen mentioned that the, the major GI bleeding, again, one of the components is hemoglobin greater than 2 grams per deciliters. But I think one can also parse it a little bit and, and say critical GI bleeding is a hemoglobin greater, drop greater than 25% from their baseline with the signs of hemodynamic compromise or signs of end organ damage. Now, each part of this life-threatening bleeding, whether it's intracranial hemorrhage or interperitoneal bleedings, they have the pros and cons of their presentations. As you know, in our 
our specialty, our, our bleeding declares itself very robustly and effervescently. So we get to find these things pretty quickly. But if they have a brisk bleeding, you know, sometimes it lacks a time to have that equilibration. So when, when the ER, for example, or, or the patient gets admitted upstairs and check the hemoglobin, then they may be erroneously high, but that doesn't mean that they are actually critically ill at that point. So to risk stratify the patients, um, there have been several attempts of developing a risk scoring system, and two of them were developed from the European country, uh, European uh, societies where medicine is socialized and rationed uh, to a much extent. One is a rock gold scoring system, which was created to assess the mortality, which incorporates both clinical as well as endoscopic data. The other one is Glasgow Blotch for Score, which again was published recently around a similar time, but this actually assessed the need for intervention, that is namely the hospitalization and doing the endoscopy. So I'm going to give you the table that ex exemplifies the Rocco score. So you have a variables or data on the left side, and you have a different points that are assigned to it. So for example, within the columns or the, the context of comorbidity, if you have a metastatic cancer or a renal failure, or say renal disease, you automatically earn three points. And based on the hemodynamics, if you have a signs of significant hypotension, blood pressure drop less than, is, systolic is less than 100, you already got two points on it. So you already have, to begin with, five points without any else. And if you actually add them up and tally them up, and you actually can have a pretty nice and validated uh, 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 risk in terms of mortality as well as rebleeding rate. So, for example, if I, as I mentioned, if the score is 5, your risk of mortality is now about 11 percent, whereas the risk of rebleeding is about 25 percent. So that is pretty helpful, except that really is cumbersome, and not many people can memorize that. So to augment that issue, there was a newer system, a scoring system that was created uh, by Saltzman and group in the Brigham, which called AIMS-65. So it uses very simplified five metrics, that is the albumins, INRs, mental status, blood pressures, and age. And it only uh, points, assigns points, uh, one point each, and based on that, based on the scoring system, one can rather reliably uh, detect the risk of mortality, which, uh, by the way, this study has been validated, validated with this uh, new set of patients. So this goes back to the whole point of timing of the endoscopy. So when do we need to do the endoscopy? So there has been a consensus that was published as well as the opinions from the key opinion uh, leaders. So the consensus from the international uh, uh, group states that early endoscopy within 24 hours of the presentation is recommended in most patients. And this has been echoed by the experts such as Lauren Lanes at the, uh, Yale who says the patient with the upper GI bleeding should generally undergo endoscopy within 24 hours of admission following resuscitative effort to optimize hemodynamic parameters. So why do I actually stay in this? Because of actually this slide, which I, I, I find it pretty important. So this was actually a study that was published in GIE in 2017. So they are looking for so-called the golden time of endoscopy. When is the best time to do the endoscopy that has the lowest mortality? So graph on the left is the patients who have a hemodynamically stable bleeding. Graph on the right is the patients with hemodynamically unstable bleeding. The, 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 the line on the top is a high ANA. ASA classes, so sicker ones. On the bottom is the lower uh, ASA class. And as you can see, there is that bell or reverse bell shape, and you can see that somewhere between 18 to 28 hours is where there is the sweet spot for the endoscopy. So in other words, between 18 hours to 28 hours of the admission is the best time that you're going to have endoscopic outcome. And people can make a lot of conjectures to it. My
my guess is, and I think this is uh, probably you would agree, is that that's the time we were able to adequately resuscitate the patients. So you're, you're the patients' hemodynamic parameters will allow us to be uh, as aggressive as we need to be with the medications and due diligence in terms of doing the endoscopic interventions. So when we discuss the reversing the agents or giving, giving the, uh, the uh, anticoagulant agents, basically it's a balanced game between the risk, reducing the risk of thrombotic events versus the increasing risk of bleeding. And, and when we reverse it, obviously it's vice versa. So cardiologists and some of the, uh, the hematology specialists use these chest to scores on the patients who actually have a cardiac or arrhythmias or atrial fibrillations. You know, who are the people who will benefit from getting these anticoagulant medications? So this chest ds uh, chest s 2 score combines several parameters such as the, uh, uh, the uh, hypertension, diabetes, a history of strokes. And again, much like other scoring systems, you tally them up. And for example, if you have a chest scores of greater than five, you have a risk of CVA about one in eight per year, so 12.5%, which perfectly justify, in my opinion, of patients going getting these medications on a long term. So I'm going to just have spent just two slides on the antiplatelet medications, and the reason is pretty simple, which I'll state anyway. There's these medications, the newer ones, so-called the P2Y12 antagonists, such as the clopidogrels and ticagrelors, they don't have a reversing agent, so only way, they irreversibly bind the platelets. So only way for us to augment that or help that is actually platelet transfusion if necessary. So in terms of pharmacologic perspective, you know, you have to just wait it out. So that's what this table is saying, that, that you know, only in terms of emergency, if you were to consider um, aiding your endoscopic attempt, is a platelet transfusion. And you know, I can count, in my opinion, as to when the patients were bleeding on these medications, how many times we end up actually giving platelets. More often than not, uh, you know, if the patient needs endoscopy, you just bite the bullet and do it. Um, so that is the limitation of these antiplatelet agents. What about anticoagulant agents? So warfarin is the prototype, as Dr. Dresden has talked about, and I'm not going to spend too much time repeating it. So it's just that, you know, those direct factor 10A, they have this SA, so river roxavan. So this is a very clever way of pharmacology. The companies to come up with these names, apixaban, so you have this 10A hidden somewhere there. And there's also a direct thrombin inhibitor, which is dabigatrin. So, and as Dr. Dresden mentioned, not all the DOACs are same, right? Different mechanisms of action. Uh, he discussed that. He also mentioned the dabigatrin is 80% renal excretions. Also, there is a small study that was published in 2017 said the risk of the GI bleeding is not the same. For example, apixaban was associated with a lower risk than the, the dabigatrin uh, when it comes to the risk of GI bleeding. So this is the watered-down version of GI. We're plumbers, so we can't remember that coagulation cascade, so I'm just going to focus on that part. Uh, so the, the factor 10A basically uh, inhibits the propagation uh, part of it. That's where the uh, pixivans and the uh, rivaroxivan fits. The uh, direct thrombin inhibitor basically prevents the convergence of fibrinogen to fibrin. That's the gabigatrin. So the point of this table is this. Most of them have a half-life of 12 hours with the exception of Betrixaban, which again, Dr. as Dr. Dresden says, we don't really use here. Um, on the, and, and, and their onset of action is pretty immediate, so within an hour or two, you're going to see the robust effect of these medications. So we talk about reversing agents, and again, some of these things that were mentioned by Dr. Drezin. So one is the idariocizumab, which is very specific for dabigatrin. Uh, the little, 
older and a little bit more tried and true, but not necessarily efficacious, is the protein complex concentrates, and the nuclear on the block is indexinit alpha. So just very quickly, the ardeirocizumab is, uh, is a specific monoclonal antibody. It preferentially binds to dabigetrin over the native thrombin. Its onset of action is immediate. Its so-called terminal half-life is less than 10 hours, but it's very limited to direct thrombin inhibitors. Now, interestingly, although that's 80% clear by the renal, if I'm not mistaken, the company who manufactures this does, doesn't say that it needs to be dose, uh, renally dose-adjusted. Is that, is that true? Yeah, I believe that is true. Okay. Um, now, much uh, tried and true and robust literature exists with the protein complex inhibitors. So it comes in the two forms. It's either uh, three components versus four components. Mainly, we're talking about the four component, uh, which contains the factors two, seven, two, nine, ten, and the sum of the factor seven as well. The onset of action is very quick, and you don't need to match the blood type. And some of these things can be actually stored in a room temperature, which is, I guess, the benefit of it. So the indexinate alpha is the modified recombinant inactive form of human factor A. So they bind, and basically they take away the factor 10A inhibitor from the circulations. Um, so onset of action is within minutes. The, the reversal of the anticoagulation effect of the uh, factor 10A with this medication actually persists about a one hour or so after the infusion is completed. So it's not really long-lasting effect. So there are three studies that, that, that I would like to briefly mention, and, one of, and a couple of them, actually, Dr. Tu will go into details. So one is the effect of the idarocizumab on the, uh, the, uh, the dabigatran. This is called a reverse S study, which was published in New England Journal of Medicine, so which incorporated 300, more than 300 patients, of which 137 was GI bleeding. What they were looking for is the uh, cessation of bleeding in terms of how long did it take, as well as any adverse outcomes such as thrombotic events. So in this study, they reported two-thirds of patients actually had a, a, a successful and a, a, a confirmed bleeding cessation within 24 hours. Um, and, but having said that, they also reported a 30-day mortality of 11%, as well as thrombotic events of close to 5% within the 30 days of the reversal. Despite the study concluded that in the emergency, the situations either your cisumab rapidly, uh, durably, and safely reverse the anticoagulant effects of the dabigatran. So PCC, as I said before, multiple studies exist. So, but one pertinent study that we have is the post hoc analysis comparing the GI bleedings, uh, GI bleeders who compare with the just plasma infusion versus the PCC. And this is a small study that only incorporated 20 patients on each arm. What they were looking for is a surrogate, so time to procedure. How long did it take from the patient, patients to actually be admitted, transfused, these medications had endoscopy done? And their study concluded that with the PCC, time to endoscopy was significantly, statistically significantly shorter, 18 hours or less than 18 hours versus 24 hours. But if you remember that, that, that the graph that I showed you, the golden hours of endoscopy still lies between that 18 to 28 hours. So in terms of meaningful endoscopic hemostasis, does that translate into it? We can question that because even with the 24 hours, I am not sure if that's any detrimental for the patients actually having endoscopy at that time. 
So lastly, this is a, uh, the study on the indexinet, which looked at the reversal of the factor 10A inhibitors. So this is so-called the NXA4 clinical trials. I apologize for the busy table of the graph on the, uh, on the right side. So this incorporated 352 patients, of which uh, close to 250 patients actually met the criteria for a efficacy evaluation. Of those, 62 were actually had a major GI bleeding, and all these people actually had a wide range of the factor 10A inhibitors, including apixaban and rivaroxaban, and so forth and so on. So they actually had a little bit of a subjective definition of good versus excellent hemostasis. So they, they based this on the base of the, uh, on the blood loss. So if you lost less than 10% or close to 10%, that was considered as excellent hemostasis. If it's less than 20%, it was, it was good hemostasis. So that's what they were looking for. So nevertheless, this study concluded that about 82% of the patient had excellent or good hemostatic efficacies overall. 85% of the people under the headings of the GI bleeding actually had either good or excellent hemostasis. Again, you turn around and talk about the adverse events and safety issues, 10% of the patients actually had thrombotic events within 30 days. Of actually, 3% of the patients actually had thrombotic events within five days of the index and the infusion. So you know, it is not without any uh, precautionary tales at this point. So let's go to the, what's pertinent to us in GI. How should we manage these DOACs in the setting of acute GI bleeding? The intervention actually, again, depends on the severity of bleeding. We talked about that. Timing of the last DOAC is critically important, which I'm sure Dr. Tu will talk about. The creatinine clearance or renal function, as, as we discussed. So for non-life-threatening bleeding in the absence of renal dysfunction, the study actually had concluded that temporary cessation is sufficient as an anticoagulant effect for the DOACs as it wanes off, you wait, wait for this to wane off after the discontinuation, so within 24, 12 to 24 hours or so. But there are also consensus that came out from the American College of Cardiology as well as some of the uh, several GI uh, societies. So these are some of the robust or the important uh, highlights that they recommended. So reversal, reversal agents should be reserved only for the patient with a life-threatening bleed. Use of four-factor uh, PCCs, as I, as I said before, is, is uh, in patients uh, taking vitamin K, antagonists, or factor 10A inhibitors recommended. Now, this study was published before the endexinate study, so this, in that sense, this is a little bit of an older uh, uh, recommendation. Patient with a major GI bleeding while taking dabigatrin should be ad uh, administered idiocizumab uh, for the reversal. For patients with the GI bleeding, Restarting oral anticoagulant within seven days has been associated with the better outcomes, including improving survival and reduced thromboembolic risk. So they, they said within seven days, that's what the American Cardiology Physician recommended in 2017. Now, if we talk about our own society's recommendations, the most recent recommendation, or perhaps more salient and robust recommendation, came from the Joint Asian Pacific. Uh, Association of Gastroenterology and Asian Pacific Society of Digestive Endoscopy. So this recommendation was published, I believe, last year. So in regards to the oral antiplatelet therapy, again, just one slide on this, um, they do not recommend withholding both agents. We already practiced that. Patients on the PPI continue the aspirin while stopping the clopidogrel. Uh, in patients with a drug-eluting coronary stent, they recommend the early resumption of these, uh, these uh, clopidogrels or other P2Y12 uh, uh, receptor inhibitors uh, probably within the five days of the effective endoscopic hemostasis. 
So how about warfarin specifically? So again, recommend that we're holding the, uh, the warfarin. This is no-brainer. Uh, they also recommend four-factor PCC plus a low-dose vitamin K. Uh, again, the importance, that the, 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 the utmost importance of, of my presentation is this. Do not delay the endoscopy of life-threatening bleeding at the expense of or, uh, trying to minimize, minimize, normalize the anticoagulant effect. Um, rechecking the INR after the uh, reversal therapy is routinely not recommended. Again, bridging um, is only recommended for quote-unquote high thromboembolic risk patients. So moving on to the DOEX, they recommend reholding DOEX for the same reason, for the effective hemostasis. Um, so this, this activated charcoal thing is funny. In fact, I asked Dr. Chu about this, but their consensus still recommends activated charcoal for life-threatening bleeding if the last dose of DOEG was within three hours or so. Um, how many of you guys have done um, endoscopy with the activated charcoal in your stomach? Um, yeah, that's exactly my point. <laughs> so, and idarocizumab uh, for the treatment of life-threatening bleeding in a patient with the dabigatrin and no vitamin K for bleeding associated with the DOEX, and no bridging therapy, as Dr. Dresden mentioned. Is there some difference, subtle differences? The answer to that is yes. When it comes to patients on the warfarin, the Asian Pacific Society recommends low dose of vitamin K, whereas the European Society recommends a higher dose. When you talk about the resumption of the warfarin, the Asian Society recommends actually much more quicker, within three days of the adequate hemostasis, whereas interestingly and surprisingly to my discovery, European Society recommends resumption within seven to 15 days following the bleeding event. Now, as to when to resume the DOAX, the Asian Pacific Society, again, recommends within three days, whereas ASGE, ESGE uh, says not specified or ask cardiologists. Um, I presume there aren't cardiologists here, so how many times when you ask these questions, you get really helpful short sentence question, yes, you can resume, no, you cannot resume, because that's really hard to come by for me, actually, for my cardiologist. So in summary, in vast majority, endoscopic evaluation should not be delayed in severe life-threatening bleeding in an attempt to reverse coagulopathy. Again, I emphasize that. The cessation of the dual antipolar therapies, or DOEX, often suffice in terms of managing the coagulopathy in setting of upper GI bleeding. And the utility or the use of the reversing agent should only be considered in the very most dire life-threatening circumstances. But we still don't have a clear agreement and idea as to the resuming the DOEX. And, and, and as, as, to, as to when is the good time to do so. I think the belief is that, that sooner the better. I, I, and, 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 and that still needs to be bared out in much uh, future studies to come. Thank you very much for your attention.